Good morning. Welcome to the final round of this year's Lyle Moot Court competition. On behalf of myself, the board, thank you all for being here and taking time out of your weekend. Um, before we get started, I'd like to make a brief announcement. If there are any one else here, there'll be an information session in this room on Thursday from 1130 to 1230, um, where you can learn how to get involved with the competition and what that involvement entails. Today we're going to find out who the 88th winner of the Lyle Moot Court competition is. One of these two teams will be joining the ranks of some of our most distinguished alums, alums that include Ted Kennedy. But regardless of who wins today, both teams have an immense amount for which they can be proud of. They've completed an unbelievable amount of work. Going back to the fall of 2-0 year, over the last four semesters, they've completed four briefs and six oral arguments, the most recent of which occurred in front of a panel of both the federal and state judiciary. That panel was sincere and gave them significant praise for their skill and effectiveness in oral advocacy. Today we have a similar panel. Uh, today we have Judge Patricia Millett from the D.C. Circuit, Judge Pamela Reeves of the Eastern District of Tennessee, and Justice David Strauss of the Minnesota Supreme Court. Judge Millett is a graduate of Harvard Law School. Upon graduation, she clerked for Judge Thomas Tang on the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. She worked for several years in the Justice Department before being appointed to the bench in 2013 by President Obama. Judge Reeves is a, graduated, is a graduate of Tennessee Law School. She worked for several years in private practice in Tennessee before forming her own firm in Knoxville. She was appointed to the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Tennessee in 2013 by President Obama. Justice Strauss is a graduate of Kansas undergrad in Kansas Law School. He clerked for Judge Bernetti on the Ninth Circuit, Judge Michael Lutig on the Fourth Circuit, before clerking for Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. He was a professor of law at the Minnesota School of Law before taking a seat on the Minnesota Supreme Court in 2010. On behalf of myself and the school, I'd like to thank these judges for taking time out of their busy schedules to be here. Uh, now for a brief introduction to today's problem, here's Kevin Palmer for a uh, brief introduction to today's problem. Thanks, everyone. And I just want to briefly thank Paul Atkinson uh, for all his hard work as our president this past year. Uh, it's been a great year for Lyle, and it wouldn't have been possible without Paul's help. Um, I also just want to throw in quickly uh, how impressive it is that these two teams have made it uh, here today. Um, they had to get past some incredibly qualified and hardworking and talented teams in both the quarterfinal and semifinal rounds, um, really proving that the state of oral advocacy here at UVA couldn't be stronger. Um, also, they had to be generalists like any good appellate litigators are. Um, to reach the final round, they had to brief and argue problems on habeas corpus, affirmative action, the Erie Doctrine, and constitutional criminal procedure protections. Today's problem is about political rights. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 is a seminal piece of American legislation, formally bringing to an end the Jim Crow era in American politics. It was enacted to allow African Americans and later other racial minorities equal access to the polls. Um, in 2017, in our hypothetical uh, U.S. Congress, um, Congress amended the Voting Rights Act to also encompass belief as a protected category, with legislative history suggesting that belief means religious belief, uh, protecting religious minorities such as Jews and Muslims against discrimination. In the hypothetical state of Hamilton, uh, the legislature passed a redistricting plan aimed at minimizing the incumbent governor's party. The governor sued to block this plan under the new Voting Rights Act, arguing that the term belief encompasses political belief. The two issues to be argued here today are first standing. 
does the governor meet the constitutional requirements to bring her suit in federal court? And second, should the term belief be construed to encompass political belief? All rise. the case of Connor Murphy versus Mary Sullivan. Uh, on behalf of uh, Connor Murphy, the appellant, we're going to hear first from Daniel Desaunier. Madam Chief Judge, your honors, and may it please the court. My name is Danielle Desaunier, and I, along with my co-counsel, Adam Stemple, represent Connor Murphy, the Hamilton Commissioner of Elections. Governor Sullivan asks this court to intervene in a political dispute between the legislative and executive branches of the state of Hamilton. This court should decline to do so for three reasons. First, Governor Sullivan lacks standing. Second, her constitutional claims present non-justiciable political questions. And third, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act does not outlaw partisan gerrymandering. I will address the first two issues, and my co-counsel will address the third. Governor Sullivan has presented a non-justiciable case or controversy for three reasons. First, she lacks standing in any capacity for any claim. Second, there are no judicially manageable standards by which to adjudicate partisan gerrymandering claims. And third, even if such standards were to exist, this court should not permit Sullivan to propose them for the first time here today. Turning first to standing, your honors. At the outset, I would like to note that the standing inquiry applied here today must be especially rigorous. As the Supreme Court said in Lujan, when considering standing after a completed trial, evidence to prove standing must be adduced from the record. With respect to the Voting Rights Act, Section 2 claims are district specific. Courts have interpreted Section 2 to require a plaintiff to show individual harm, meaning the boundaries of their legislative district have been changed because of the redistricting plan, and they are now underrepresented within that district. And you can see this doctrine coming from cases like Hall v. Virginia, an EDVA case affirmed by the Fourth Circuit, and the Ragdano cases from the Northern District of Illinois, among others. Now, those cases primarily deal with vote dilution claims. But as the record clearly reflects at page 43, quote, plaintiff avers LB1 is an impermissible political gerrymander in violation of section two. Doesn't she also argue that there's an institutional injury here in her capacity as governor? Yes, Your Honor, and that speaks to her standing in her official capacity, and that goes to her standing under the 14th Amendment. But with respect to her standing under Section 2, Governor Sullivan must prove the district-specific standing requirements. 
Although Section 2 is not typically seen as providing a cause of action for gerrymandering claims, as Judge Pryor said in the lower court decision of Alabama Legislative Black Caucus when presented with a racial gerrymandering claim under Section 2, if Section 2 provides a cause of action for gerrymandering, that cause of action must be analyzed consistent with the requirements of the 14th Amendment, and that means district-specific standing. Governor Sullivan cannot satisfy- district-specific standing in Baker versus Carr? Uh, Your Honor, Baker versus Carr is not a gerrymandering case. No, but it, it, was, it was a case about one person, one vote, the power of an individual vote, which I think is very closely connected to a political gerrymandering case. So why shouldn't we look at the injury as the harm from having a distorted, gerrymandered electoral system as a whole? Your Honor, the Supreme Court has clearly distinguished the difference between a vote dilution case, which is much more closely analogous to a one-person, one-vote case, and a gerrymandering case. As Your Honor correctly points out, in a vote dilution and a one-person, one-vote case, the harm is the entire map. The value of the plaintiff's vote is less powerful with respect to the entire map. But in gerrymandering, the harm is one of classification. I have been identified, put into this district, and deprived the right to vote because of my membership in a constitutionally or statutorily protected class. For that reason, applying the district-specific standing requirements makes even more sense in the gerrymandering context. So you'd have a gerrymandering claim here. Assume that uh, they redrew the lines, and you ended up having uh, the lines moved, but you essentially had the same political predicted political division and results as in 2008. But one district or so, pretty much was, uh, it, it was always going to be a Federalist district, but we just packed more Federalist people into it. But the overall outcome wasn't predicted to be materially different. Would those folks packed in there have a claim that their votes have been diluted if nothing's really going to change in outcomes or expected to change in outcomes? Your Honor, I'm not sure about the standard for vote dilution because Governor Sullivan has pleaded a gerrymandering claim and the vote dilution analysis- I'm asking you gerrymandering in that case. They've been put in there because of their political uh, inclinations or expected predicted political inclinations. Yes, Your Honor. If an individual- That's how the lines were drawn. Yes, Your Honor. If an individual's district's lines were changed and redrawn for the reasons Your Honor laid out, that could provide standing for a gerrymandering claim. And what Your Honor is referring- to gerrymandering effect in the system. I mean, don't we need to look at the whole system at some level to really, or look beyond just the one district to understand whether gerrymandering has occurred? No, Your Why Honor, you? and that's because as the Supreme Court said in Miller v. Johnson, gerrymandering is a classification-based harm. It's about you individually being moved around, not with respect to the entire map. But I do want to address what I think maybe- But you've gotta be, yes, but you've gotta be moved in a way that harms the efficacy of your vote. Uh, with respect to- your, Because of your political perspective. Yes, Your Honor, the efficacy of your vote to elect a member who is representative of you within that district. Mm -hmm. And that's the distinction between a gerrymandering claim, it's district specific, as opposed to a vote dilution claim, which looks at efficacy from the map as a whole. But I do want to address what may be Your Honor's underlying point, which is whether anyone could have standing to challenge LB1. And importantly, Commissioner Murphy has never contended that LB1 is unchallengeable, but simply that Governor Sullivan is the wrong plaintiff. Nine of Hamilton's 11 legislative districts were changed by LB1. Governor Sullivan's district, Bear Island, was not one of them. So could anybody in any of those nine affected districts sue um, against this political gerrymander or based on this political gerrymandering claim? 
Provided they satisfy the district-specific standing requirements, Your Honor, yes, they could. Now, I'd like to turn briefly to the 14th Amendment. But why can't partisan-based gerrymandering be both a personal harm and a general dilution of voting power? Your Honor, that's not how the Supreme Court has conceptualized it. And again, I would point to Miller v. Johnson, where it said, quote, that these two claims are analytically distinct. Uh, now, I, I do want to turn quickly to Governor Sullivan's 14th Amendment standing in response to Your Honor's earlier question about her standing in her official capacity. There is no gubernatorial-specific standing doctrine from the Supreme Court, but state cases, district court cases, and the Supreme Court's cases on legislative standing are instructive here. And in order to prove standing for an institutional actor, you must show a violation of your constitutional authority, i.e. nullification. But what Governor Sullivan alleges here is not nullification. As the Supreme Court said in Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission when drawing a distinction between Coleman and Reins, two legislative standing cases. Why, why isn't the uh, dilution, elimination, or possible elimination of her veto um, not a nullification of one of her essential constitutional powers? What Governor Sullivan has complained of, Your Honor, is rendering her veto less politically effective. And that's exactly the distinction the Supreme Court drew in Arizona when it looked Wait, at the difference. What do you mean by less politically effective? She's, she's not going to have a veto. It's cooked into the way these lines were drawn. She, or she, can't, she cannot veto anything anymore. Your because Honor, of the super like majority. It. And that was exactly the plan. Respectfully, Your Honor, we would disagree. Governor Sullivan can still veto, but her veto can be overridden, and that's exactly the process the Hamilton Constitution prescribes. This is notably distinct from the case of Brewer v. Burns, an Arizona Supreme Court case where the court did find nullification because the legislature declined to present past bills to the governor for her review, thereby nullifying her veto right. What Governor Sullivan complains of here is well, not there nullification. they could have just vetoed it after she signed it in that case, too. I'm sorry, Your Honor? Could, in Brewer, they could have vetoed it after the, the, she signed it, correct? Uh, Your Honor, the harm it's there... just the process. The harm there was denying her the opportunity to exercise her veto, not the ability to override the veto. Uh, but if she can exercise it, but we all know it's a meaningless political exercise, we have to just accept that for purposes of standing injury analysis? That's exactly the distinction, Your Honor, that the court drew in Arizona when it looked at the difference in Coleman, where they found nullification, and Reigns, where they found I that... I think the distinction there was that we as judges have to turn our eyes, avert our eyes from reality that's right in front of us and confessed on the record of the case. Your Honor, the Supreme Court has been very clear that rendering a vote ineffective does not, uh, politically ineffective, excuse me, or politically less powerful does not constitute nullification. By a legislator, by a legislator. But here, this is, this is not a vote, this is her power. And the way they have now designed the political system within Hamilton is that they, they might as well have scratched that veto power out of the Hamilton Constitution because it is an empty exercise. If we assume that that's what we're more to conclude from this record, maybe we wouldn't, but let's assume that's what we concluded. Would you still say there's not an institutional injury? Yes, Your Honor, because her veto power has not been nullified. There's a difference between an actual nullification and what Your Honor is pointing to here, which is the ability of Governor Sullivan to implement the political outcomes she sees as desirable. And although Your Honors may consider that to be an effective nullification, that is still not an actual nullification as required by the Supreme Court to prove standing. But I do want to emphasize- Before you, before you move on, how does your argument square with Coleman versus Miller, the, the Kansas case dealing with the constitutional amendment? Uh, 
Your Honor, Coleman, the Supreme Court case, is, is that what you're referring yes. to? Yes. Uh, in Coleman, they did find nullification, but they only found nullification once the legislatures had voted on a bill and the bill had gone into effect over their votes because the lieutenant governor had impermissibly participated in the process. They found that to be nullification, and that is different here because there is no one impermissibly participating in the process. Well, isn't that, but it, the impermissibility here would be the line drawing that's empowered them to do this. Uh, yes, Your Honor, but there's also a te temporal distinction here. Governor Sullivan has no constitutional role in the Hamilton redistricting process. She has no right to veto LB1, and what she challenges is simply too speculative and not imminent enough to prove uh, the requirements established by not the Supreme imminent. Why is it not imminent enough? In Coleman, uh, to respond to Your Honor's earlier question, the Supreme Court said that there was only nullification once the bill had been passed and gone into effect. Here. There would need to be a potential bill presented that is potentially passed, potentially vetoed, and potentially overridden in order to satisfy what the Supreme Court laid out in Coleman. Now, I do want well, to. Wait, what do you potential? I mean, the fact that things haven't yet happened does not deprive someone of standing as long as it's a substantial risk that this is going to happen. And this whole design, again, the whole purpose, and it's laid out explicitly in the record by the, the, uh, the progressives in the legislature is. We know exactly what's going to happen. We know exactly, at least with 95% certainty, what the outcome of the election is going to be. And they've said, in particular, what they're planning to override on environmental laws. We would still contend, Your Honor, that this is simply too speculative because, as the Supreme Court said, we would need an actual bill that has actually gone into effect in order to prove No, but then that means we have to wait until after these elections have happened um, would you agree that if this were to happen, this type of override were to happen after the election, that we would have any authority to undo the election and cure the problem? No, Your Honor. How would the problem be cured at that stage? Your Honor, the problem could be cured now by having the proper plaintiff before you here today. How, uh, my question to you was how would it be cured at the time you think she could bring the yes, lawsuit? Yes, Your Honor. I apologize. Mm -hmm. At that point, the only resolution is to redraw the boundaries in question. To exactly. Either by the, and who has to do that redrawing? Either the court or the legislature itself. Now, I understand that the record here is very difficult and there is a lot of information in the record that makes us skeptical of what may happen and it makes us skeptical of the motives of the legislatures. But courts confronted with similarly egregious examples of redistricting on partisan grounds, like in Harris v. McCrory, have still found these cases to be non-justiciable because there is no way to adjudicate these using a manageable and reliable standard. And that brings me to the second point of my argument, Your Honors. Even if you disagree with us on the standing analysis, under the Constitution, these are still non-justiciable political questions. The Supreme Court has been very- clear, your position on that is it's non-justiciable solely because we haven't come up with a good test yet? Uh, yes, Your Honor. That's the sole reason. With respect to the political question doctrine, yes. yes. As, as to that, that just strikes me as quite odd. If our job is to interpret the Constitution and enforce the Constitution, then it's our job to come up with a standard. We can't say there's some constitutional problem in the air out there, and maybe one of you all will think of some good way that we can enforce it. The constitutional test is the measure of constitutionality, so really the onus is on us to come up with a test. Wouldn't you agree? 
Respectfully, Your Honor, I would caution this court against creating its own test that hasn't properly been tested in the district courts. That's exactly what the Bandemir plurality Isn't did. Isn't our job to create, I, th I thought appeals courts created rules of law for district courts to apply under the Constitution all the time. Your Honor, the, ger the partisan gerrymandering context is slightly different. And and that's because you need a test that will work in a variety of factual circumstances across the lifetime of one case and many cases. And that's why- That's what we do all the time with rules of law. We don't just resolve the one case in front of us. When we declare a rule of law under the Constitution, whether it's free speech or Fourth Amendment searches or cruel and unusual punishment, it applies jurisdiction-wide Even all cases. Even if your honors were to choose to create a new test here and model it off the Whitford test as proposed by Governor Sullivan, that test is still fundamentally flawed. The first prong of the Whitford test- So what should the test be if you think that one's flawed? Your honor, the burden is not on Commissioner Murphy. I know, but I'm asking your opinion. If you think it's flawed, you must have a sense of what would be right. The only test that has seen any potential viability is an effects-based test only, not an intent-based test, which Governor Sullivan's proposed test incorporates. And the effects-based test can only be applied at the end of a completed election based on candidate-specific metrics. And I'm drawing that from the efficiency gap. And the efficiency Why gap- Why shouldn't intent be part of the analysis? Your Honors, because the central problem in gerrymandering questions is how far is too far. And no court or litigant has ever come up with a way to define how much intent is too much intent. Well, how, how far? What is too far? How far considerations of partisanship? Right, considerations of partisanship. So it seems to me in your articulation of it, we're going to add, the first thing we're gonna ask is, were they considering politics when they drew these lines, which would seem to be an intent question. You may finish. Your Honor, the answer to the intent question cannot be done on a case-by-case -case basis. The Supreme Court has been very clear that in the partisan gerrymandering context, the test needs to be repeatable and reliable and cannot be drawn case by case. Governor Sullivan has failed to propose a way to determine when intent has crossed the line from not severe to severe. No court and no litigant has proposed a solution to that either. And for these reasons, we would contend that the Whitford test as proposed by Sullivan is inapplicable and this case is not justiciable. Thank you. Right, thank you. Now we'll hear from Kyle Cole. May it please the court, my name is Kyle Cole. I, along with my co-counsel, Tuba Ahmed, represent the appellee in today's case, Governor Mary Sullivan. Fundamentally, the first issue turns on whether the First and Fourteenth Amendments, along with the Voting Rights Act, require that an election's result bear at least a passing resemblance to the votes that are actually cast in that election. Governor Sullivan submits that the answer to this question must be yes, and that in the proceedings below, she has adequately demonstrated injury in fact ripeness in a judicially manageable test for constitutional claims. Now, the claims. appellants haven't even discussed ripeness. They didn't mention that at all in their brief, right? That's true, Your Honor, but this court has a sua sponte duty to assure itself of ripeness in each particular case, and the dissenting opinion in the trial court made an issue or at least suggested that there could be a potential ripeness. And if you were listening careful to the appellant's speech just now, what they've said is this court is- I promise is we were listening carefully. <laughs> Thank you, Your Honor. In this particular case, there's too much uncertainty. You heard that again and again from opposing counsel. There is no uncertainty in this case. We have 95% accuracy with respect to what the, the effect of this legislation is going to be. We know that it's going to be a progressive party landslide. 
That's what LB1 was designed to do. Why pass LB1 if you didn't want to secure the gerrymandering? Is 95% enough to overcome the requirement of imminence and that the injury not be speculative? Yes, Your Honor. I think 95% plus statements from the majority party leader on the floor saying this is what we are going to do, this is what we intend to achieve, is sufficient for this court to move forward. And again, the appellant didn't raise this issue. They haven't briefed it. We have no way of knowing except for our brief, which clearly lays out the proper test for ripeness in this case, which turns on the degree of contingency and the harm. And as Your Honor indicated, there's an immense harm here. Well, let's it talk about her so-called personal injury. Um, she lives on an island, correct? Bear Island, Your Honor. And uh, that district wasn't changed at all. Yes, yes, Your Honor. There's no change at all. She's exactly the same under the 2008 plan and under the 2017 plan. Yes, 2016? 2017 plan, correct? Yes. Okay. So, for her personally, nothing has changed. Your Honor, what has changed is LB1. And as Your Honor indicated, in partisan gerrymandering cases and in dilution cases, the injury is map-wide. It doesn't look at a specific district. When the Progressive Party drafted LB1, they didn't say, let's go district by district and think about what the voter composition is. What they did was say, let's aim for a particular result. Let's aim for a supermajority that will allow us to make Governor Sullivan's veto ineffectual. Is gerrymandering a classification injury? Your Honor, it is to a certain extent, but it is also is dilution. It? it is the next phase okay. of are vote dilution. Gerrymandering and dilution, are those individualized injuries? Gerrymandering is, is a, a classification, Your Honor. It's yes. a classification, it's an individualized injury. It, it's a hybrid, really, Your Honor. Mm -hmm. What it says is we are targeting a specific group of people for a this dilution of their individual votes. That's the mechanism by which a gerrymander works. So it is both a classification and a dilution of her, their vote. If, her, if she was not classified, and if her vote is not diluted within her district, then how is she personally injured? Your Honor, the problem is that that contention is belied by the record in this case. Here we have the Progressive Party Majority Leader standing on the floor of the Hamilton State Legislature and saying, we want to disenfranchise or dilute the votes of Federalist voters. Of Federalist voters, but not her. Hers hasn't changed. Well, Your Honor, had he said that on the floor of the Hamilton State Legislature, then this would be a different case. But what he said was, Federalist voters. She is a Federalist voter and is clearly someone that is being targeted, at least in the abstract, as a Federalist voter. And certainly with respect- Are there respect any offices, what, what offices in Hamilton? So obviously her legislative representative is just gonna come from Bear Island, right? Yes, Your Honor. So there's no dilution there, different between, from the 2008 standard, right? No, Your Honor. There's just as much force for her vote now as she did then. That correct? is true, Your Honor. And then I assume statewide offices are they, are they, if you know in the record, are they voted just a popular vote yes, statewide? That's correct. So that's not diluted by the line drawing either. So I'm trying to figure what vote she has cast or might cast in the foreseeable, reasonably foreseeable future where her vote would be worth less today than it was worth in 2008. Your Honor, if I can, I would just like to challenge the underlying premise of the question, which is that the district lines matter. Okay, are you challenging the underlying premise because you don't have an answer to the overt premise? No, I, I don't think that's the case, Your Honor. I think that the reason I'm challenging the underlying premise here 
is because the Supreme Court's case law on partisan gerrymandering never talks about injury, in fact, with the exception of one dissenting opinion issued by Justice Stevens in Veith. That opinion tried to do exactly what the Supreme, or what the appellant asked this court to do today, which is to cross-apply Hayes, a case about racial gerrymandering, to a case about partisan gerrymandering. The problem is that all of the justices, outside of Justice Stevens, Justice Scalia in his uh, dissenting, or Justice Scalia in the plurality opinion, Justice Kennedy in his controlling opinion in that case, and Justice Stevens' dissenting co-dissenters in that case, all rejected that analogy and said that a map or that partisan gerrymandering occurs map wide. But counsel, here, here's my problem with your argument. I mean, part of the standing doctrine is to try to find a plaintiff with a sufficient stake in the outcome of the litigation. And we have nine potential citizens from nine potential districts that could sue and assert the exact same injury that your client has asserted. Why not just wait for someone in one of those nine, 11, nine of 11 districts who's affected by this, uh, by this redrawing of the, of the lines to, to sue? Why, why your client? Well, Your Honor, I think the reason why not to wait is because we're roughly four or five months away from the election in the state of Hamilton. As this court indicated, it is a time-intensive process to redraw legislative boundaries and get buy-in and get review of those redrawn boundaries. But isn't the fact that no one else who's actually in a jurisdiction whose vote has been diminished has brought a suit kind of telling? Well, Your Honor, it's like the dog that didn't bark. I'm not sure that the that that is reflected in the record of this case, but I think the reason why this plaintiff is appropriate is because, as Your Honors have indicated, the reason LB1 was passed is not in the air. We know exactly what the Progressive Party intended. No, but things can be really, really bad, but we still have to ask the question of whether the, the person in front of is, is the one that's injured in bringing the claim, can bring the claim, no that's matter how course. bad it is. Correct, Your Honor. But what I would say is LB1 was intended to target Governor Sullivan because of her institutional power. And that's why she's the appropriate plaintiff in today's case. What this effectively does is nullify her veto. Now, the fact that she can exercise it as a nullitor, uh, as a, in a nurgatory fashion is really irrelevant to the Supreme Court's analysis on this issue. And I would point this court towards Coleman. Coleman answers the, the question that this court was asking my, co or my esteemed opponent, which is, doesn't the fact that they, she can still exercise the veto, but that it will be overridden, isn't that sufficient injury in fact? Coleman answers that question. In Coleman, you had 20 Kansas state legislatures, legislators who exercised their vote to block a US constitutional amendment. But for the putatively unlawful act of the Kansas lieutenant governor in that case, their votes would have been effective in blocking the ratification of that amendment. But the problem with, with that is, is my understanding of Coleman is that that suit happened afterwards. It happened after this, this, these actions were taken that nullified, um, nullified the votes of those legislators. Here, the exact opposite is happening. It's a preemptive suit based on the possibility that the veto will be, will be nullified. How do you address that distinction between the two cases? Your Honor, I think Judge Millett addressed it perfectly when she said this court doesn't need to shield its eyes to, the, to what is going to happen in today's case. What will happen, what the Progressive Party leader has told us will happen, is that as soon as they obtain a supermajority in the Hamilton State Legislature, they are going to pass legislation which bars energy exploration in the state of Hamilton. That is the motivation behind LB1. It is a specific- well, this is all assuming how these elections are gonna go that maybe voters haven't gotten really ticked off by this overt effort by these folks. And maybe they'll just be 
uh, let's get rid of, you know, boot them all out. How dare they play with our political system that way? Should we at least wait to see how the election comes out? Your Honor, if I may, I think you have to think about the harms that come with that approach. First of all, you have the First Amendment issue, which is the chilling of speech. Then you get vote dilution on the day yeah, of the her election. Spe her speech hasn't been chilled. We were talking about the institutional injury here. That's, her, vote, her vote has not been chilled. That's true, Your Honor, but she loses valuable time while this, go, while this case goes through the courts. She loses valuable time to pursue her legislative agenda. We can do very agenda. expedited proceedings when we need to. I'm sorry, Your Honor? We can, go, we can do very expedited proceedings when necessary after an election. Yes, but this essentially freezes the issue for the, for the next four or five months, and then even with ex an expedited review. We can do things within a month. You know how fast something like U.S. versus Nixon or Bush versus Gore was handled? Uh, that's certainly true, Your Honor, but there would be an appreciable wait after the fact. Now, even if with expedited review, and I think... It, yeah, but then you have to show that there's an imminent injury that, that the imminence you need to show is that the elections are going to come out the way you predict, and that the courts won't be able to resolve this issue with speed needed before she actually goes ahead and pushes through um, a regulatory measure that they want to veto. That's, that's a lot more hypothetical. Your Honor, I think it is hypothetical, but again, I would, I would simply assert that the, the appellant hasn't advanced a ripeness, a ripeness contention well, you, as you in said, their brief. We've got to figure it out ourselves, right? There's a constitutional rule here, so that doesn't help. That is true. But again, ripeness looks at both the degree of the contingency and at the harm in this particular case. Here we can say with 95% certainty what the result of the election is going to be. That's based on the record. And we have been told by the Progressive Party what they intend to do with their obtained supermajority. And I also think it's important to note that this Progressive Party hasn't just obtained eight seats, which is the required threshold for a supermajority. They've contained nine. So to the extent that your honors have been paying attention to the Congress in the, late, in the latest days, this isn't a situation in which you could have potential holdout of one uh, Hamilton state legislature holding up uh, this bill. They've assured themselves more than enough support under a supermajority in order to obtain uh, the result that they desire. Why isn't your client uniquely institutionally disabled to bring this suit in that the way the Hamilton uh, political system is designed is she cannot veto legislative districting decisions. And so when you argue about her unique institutional status, aren't you just saying that she can use the courts to veto what she can't do sitting in her own office? Isn't this her effort to veto those districts and she doesn't have that authority institutionally? Well, Your Honor, I think, again, there's a correct line between the amount of partisan gerrymandering that is acceptable um, under the Constitution. Governor Sullivan is not saying that had the Progressive Party put forth a reasonable uh, a reasonable plan that she would have been able to go to the courts and successfully seek a functional veto well, of that plan. Well, she's only going to bother doing this if she thinks it's unreasonable, so I'm not sure that's much of a limit. The point of the you can't veto is people tend to veto things they think are unreasonable, correct? Yes, right? Your Honor. Okay, so it's only going to come up when she thinks it's veto-worthy. Yes. If she thinks it's veto-worthy, I bet you she'd get a great lawyer like you and come up with a reason to come to the courts and tell us to veto it for her. Your Honor, I appreciate that vote of confidence. <laughs> what I would say is that at 
the reason she brings this case is at 38%, the, the gerrymandering that we are witnessing is historic. It is the most gerrymandering we have seen in a study going all the way back to the 1970s. And if I can briefly discuss the, the test in this case that we've put forth, the test is, was rigorously uh, applied in Whitford v. Gill. We, it's gone, undergone extensive analysis at the empirical level, and it's based on the symmetry principle. The Supreme Court told us in- But the second Whitford seems to imply that the election must occur before you can bring these issues to the attention of the court. Well, Your Honor, I think that was a prudential concern, right? Whitford is a close case. Whitford is at, at I believe, 11% in terms of the efficiency gap. Here, we're at 38%. Off the top of my head, I think that's 275% more uh, of an efficiency gap than, is, than occurs in Whitford. It might be true that in a close case, you would wait until after an election. This isn't a close case. This is almost facially unconstitutional. And I believe it, to the extent that you know, this court looks at the Whitford test, the appellant, again, in their briefing- so, Just to be clear, are you saying that ripeness turns on how facially unconstitutional district, redistricting is? Your Honor, I think that's a, a potential component of ripeness if, an, if a majority party came out and said, we're not allowing anybody from the minority party to go to the polls, that would be facially unconstitutional, and you wouldn't have to worry about, well, is there some circumstance under which that would be constitutional? And if I may, Your Honor, I would simply end with the fact that the appellant in their brief doesn't submit any briefing on a substantive criticism of the Whitford test. They rely on a species of waiver argument. I have two points on that. First of all, this is a court of appeals. The review here is de novo. Secondly, it requires a, their argument requires a negative inference, which is that it wasn't raised before the court because we can't point to a particular passage where the trial court said it was raised. In this case, we, we would suggest, may I continue? You may, may you finish your answer. In this case, what we would suggest is a better reading of the trial court's opinion is that because it spends the entire first half of its trial court opinion analyzing in painstaking detail the Whitford test, that the better inference is that the test was properly offered before the trial court. Thank, Thank you, Your Honors. We'll now hear from Adam Stemple. Your Honors, and may it please the Court, Adam Stemple for Appellant. The insertion of the word belief in the amended Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act does not prohibit partisan gerrymandering. That's true for two reasons. First, the plain text and context of the statute doesn't suggest that the word belief prohibits partisan gerrymandering. And second, Congress didn't intend to prohibit partisan gerrymandering by including the word belief. First, the plain text. It's unambiguous that belief in Section 2 of the VRA refers to religious and other deeply held moral and ethical views. Uh, now, the dictionaries have defined Wait, why belief. Is, why, where's Wait. that come from? I've got all kinds of beliefs that might not be deeply moral, moral or ethical. Your Honor, dictionaries define belief in generally two sets of ways. They're either talking about religious and other sort of deep convictions, or they t speak much more broadly about things accepted as true or opinions. Now, it seems clear now, that Congress you've did really cherry-picked your definition of belief in your brief, haven't you? Where you focus just on the religious side of it, and yet, as the opponents have shown you in any review of any dictionary, you can come up with a lot of different definitions of belief. 
Your Honor, it, it, it's, uh, it's true that belief may not refer solely to religious beliefs. Uh, it may turn, as, 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 uh, as we've said, to other you know, deeply held moral views and convictions, but that's very distinct from the definition, say, that Governor Sullivan has cited, which is that belief is something accepted, considered to be true, or held as an opinion. Well, how about we just ask something in between we go, you know what, we're talking here about uh, voting systems and discrimination. Um, and so if I were to ask you to name the two or three most relevant beliefs in the context of voting or discrimination, what would those be that people have? What deep beliefs do people have that implicate voting or can be objects of discrimination? Your Honor, respectfully, that's not what Congress has put in the statute. I'm just asking in, you. In terms of, uh, in terms of beliefs. What would you mean, if in that context, in that environment, what would you think of as a deeply held Belief. Your Honor, I might think of beliefs uh, as to specific policy views. For example, uh, nonviolence or the belief that life begins at conception, uh, something along those lines. And it's possible, Your Honor. Party uh, platforms. Uh, no, Your Honor, not party platforms, because political affiliation. I know a lot of people who feel really strongly about their political allegiance one way or the other, and at least a lot of studies tell us that a lot of Americans are feeling stronger one way or the other, that we're becoming much more divided along those that's potentially held political beliefs. Yes, Your Honor, uh, and it's possible that someone might join a political party mm -hmm. as a result of mm -hmm. some belief, but that's not what Governor Sullivan has alleged here. So if it was a Green Party that they were discriminated against because of their deeply held policy beliefs in, say, climate change, pollution, and environmental protection, because you said deep, deep beliefs in this context could be policy, would that be covered by beliefs here? Your Honor, if there were, say, a single-issue party or a party uh, that had one view that was strongly correlated with that party's membership, and there were evidence submitted on the record to show that, in fact, it was on the basis of that belief that they were redistricted, that may well qualify here. So would the Green Party example I gave you count? Uh, Your Honor, I'm not offhand familiar with the entire platform of the Green Party, but mm -hmm. to the extent the Green Party uh, is a single-issue party with respect to the environment. The single issue is environmental protection. In, in that case, uh, it, it may well, if there's evidence on the record to suggest that that's mm -hmm. the, the basis for the redistricting. What if the single issue was limited government? Uh, Your Honor, that may mean very different things. Uh, and it, I know, but we believe passionately in limited government and a federalist system. Your Honor, a limited government to the extent that that's an identifiable belief, and again, to the extent that there's evidence on the record submitted uh, to show that the people who affiliate with that party, uh, that that is their core belief, uh, that may again qualify. So you really think that when Congress passed this, they expected judges to have trials on how big is your platform, how committed are you to particular issues, um, and you have too, ma too many issues that you're concerned about where you have only one. That's really the test of belief that you thought we should apply here? Uh, no, Your Honor. I don't think that's what Congress did at all. Mm -hmm. uh, I think if we look at how Congress has considered belief and partisan affiliation in the past, it's clear that this is not what Congress is trying to do. For example, Congress could have protected political affiliation and, in fact, has done so in the past, but did not do it here. Well, they've it also protected... Oh, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, well, Counsel, isn't the real problem here that you're asking us to add words to the statute? In other words, you're asking us to insert the word religion, religious beliefs, in front, of, in front of the word beliefs, and to excise the possibility that the general word beliefs can incorporate political beliefs as well. I don't think so, Your Honor. Uh, 
For one, uh, belief has never been construed by any federal court, to the best of my knowledge, in a federal statute to refer to partisan affiliation. In fact, when Congress has considered partisan affiliation uh, and, and considered outlawing partisan gerrymandering, as Governor Sullivan argues that it did here, it doesn't use the word belief at all. As recently as Are you aware of any case where a court has construed belief in a statute? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, for, uh, just the word belief like this, unadorned. I see. Uh, just the word belief like this, unadorned. Uh, I don't have a citation offhand, but for example, uh, we agree with Governor Sullivan that this court should look to the case of Welsh versus the United States, in which the Supreme Court construed uh, a statute that, yes, did have the term religious training and belief, but essentially read the word religious out of it uh, and, and considered belief to be essentially deeply held moral and ethical views that may or may not be religious in nature. But again, it's important to note that this court doesn't have to define belief here today in order to determine that Congress, by inserting this word, did not mean to prohibit partisan gerrymandering. That's what Governor Sullivan has to show, and it's simply not supported by Counsel, the Counsel, to follow up on my earlier question, um, the word belief is broad, and we've already talked about some of the different definitions that you can find depending on what dictionary you look at. Why isn't the word belief in this context at least ambiguous as to what it means? Your Honor, uh, it, it may be ambiguous. Uh, we contend that it's unambiguous, but if reasonable people could disagree, then this court could look to conventional tools of statutory interpretation. For example, the canon of no skitter as socis uh, would counsel us to look to the word surrounding belief to determine the meaning of belief. And here we see that the other uh, protected categories, race, color, and ethnicity, are all historically protected classes. Religion, religious belief, is also a historically protected class, but the any Supreme opinion... Court told us in, the Supreme Court told us, and they grade our papers, so we have to do what they say. And so uh, in uh, Allen versus Board of Education, that we are to give the broadest possible scope, that's their words, broadest possible scope to this language in Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Now, if we have to give broadest possible scope, I assume you wouldn't dispute, given that holding to the meaning of the word race. You would agree with that? Absolutely, Your Honor. And uh, ethnicity? Yes, Your Honor. Okay, so do we have to give the broadest possible scope to belief? Within the proper definition of ah, belief, ah, Your Honor. Ah, 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 ah. Do we have to give the broadest possible scope to the word belief? Yes, Your Honor, but that doesn't include going to other definitions. For example, race may cover all races, and there's no reason to arbitrarily okay. exclude white people, but it doesn't go to include, say, foot races. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that may be something of an exaggeration with regard to the distinction between the definitions mm -hmm. here, but it's simply, it, 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 it would be shocking if Congress uh, had included the term belief uh, and, and suddenly read it to, uh, to have outlawed partisan gerrymandering without any discussion someone or debate. Someone who believes that the environmental resources in the state of Hamilton should be um, used for energy development, they believe that very strongly. They've spent a lot of money and time arguing and fighting for that. Is that a belief that's protected? It might be, Your Honor, but that's I, not I, what Governor I Sullivan I, has alleged. I, I would like, is it a yes or no? I, should, I just need to know, if I'm given the broadest possible scope to belief, would you agree that someone who cares mightily about using resources in this way and has devoted time, thought, and effort to it would be protected? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Okay, okay, so if we thought they drew these lines here to discriminate against, to protect against politically voters who support, who would otherwise support, the use of environmental resources for energy development, we would have to agree that claim would come within this statute. Yes, Your Honor, if that were supported by the record. Uh, but it isn't here. Governor Sullivan has only okay, alleged- It's just a matter of statutory construction. You're conceding that 
If we find that belief to be implicated by this line drawing, we have a case. I, I mean, someone still has to prove it on the merits, but we have a case. That's, a, that's protected by this. That's a statute. That's a status that's protected by the statute. Your Honor, again, to the extent that the basis for the redistricting is the belief in a certain use of natural resources, there's a plausible reading. And, and if this court is taking, again, the broadest possible reading uh, of the term belief. I have to, right? You would agree we have to do that. The Supreme Court said so. Well, Your Honor, the Supreme Court has said so with regard to the words that have been in the statute for the last 45 years. Well, wait, 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 hang on, hang on. When the Supreme Court says you have to read a statutory provision in the broadest possible scope, do we then ask whether the next word has that same meaning? And maybe that one will get it, but then we'll give the first two words that broad meaning, but then the next one will go, no, we won't give that. But maybe the third one, fourth one, we'll give that a broad. That's not how these, these statutory constructions principles work. If it applies, it applies to that statutory provision. You're right, Your Honor. Uh, but I would submit that belief is somewhat different from race, color, and ethnicity in that it is, uh, it's a vaguer term. Uh, and so just saying that we're naturally including all, uh, all forms of the term race doesn't necessarily, it can't be as clearly applied to belief. I think there have been long and difficult and challenging fights and issues about the scope of race and color, interracial discrimination and those types of issues. So I don't think it's quite as easily cabined as you would suggest. Perhaps, Your Honor, but even if this court finds that the term is ambiguous, it can look to what Congress has done and said in the past to I'm determine its, it's ambiguous. proper scope. I'm saying the natural, very broadest possible meaning of it is, it's very broad. But that Your doesn't Honor, make it, you can be broad without being ambiguous. Your Honor, for Governor Sullivan to succeed today under her Section 2 claims, this court would have to read belief to have outlawed partisan gerrymandering. This court has tried to outlaw partisan gerrymandering in the past. As recently as the very most recent Congress, it considered two bills, three cents of Congress resolutions, and a constitutional amendment which would have done that. None of that legislation passed. It would be, frankly, shocking if this court had turned around, decided to uh, take up an issue that it had rejected so many times before, and then squeeze it into a single word of a single statute without calling it out in the statute, without any discussion or debate on the record, uh, and, uh, and, and without uh, any reference in the legislative Let's history. go back to the statute, though. So you, you argue that we should apply the associated words canon rather than getting into the Latin. We'll, we'll call it that. And so you look at the four things that, that are there, race, color, belief, or ethnicity. One of them <coughs> doesn't fit. It's belief. It doesn't look like any of the other things. To, to, to accept your argument, don't we essentially have to say that Congress must have meant religion? Because if we insert the word religion and excise the word belief, then I think the associated words canon works. Why, why should we read it in that way, given that, the, that, given that Congress didn't use the word religion? Well, I, again, Your Honor, and if I may briefly answer the question, uh, we, would say, we could contend that from a plain text reading, Congress may have meant it somewhat more broadly, but to fit in with the associated words canon, there, there's a natural reading which shows that it refers to religion and also other deeply held moral convictions, uh, as, for example, the Supreme Court has held in Welsh before. But this court should be very hesitant to read in a much broader reading of the statute when there's no evidence on the record uh, to show that and when Congress has tried to do this before and simply failed. Thank you, Your Honor. Well, I hear from Tuba Ahmed. May it please the court. I am Tuba Ahmed, co-counsel for the Appalee, Governor Sullivan. On behalf of the Appalee, we urge this court to hold that belief extends to political beliefs for three reasons. 
First, the plain meaning of the word belief, as well as a full statutory analysis, counsel in favor of reading belief to encompass political beliefs. Second. But if we adopt your uh, rather broad interpretation of the word belief, where do we stop? I mean, are there any limits to what could be covered in that? Your Honor, there are three limits. One is definitional, the second is practical, and the third is legal. The first definitional limit is that the subcategories of beliefs, such as moral and philosophical, tend to fold into the primary categories of religious and political. For example, a moral belief can be recategorized as a religious belief, and a philosophical belief can inform or be recategorized as a political belief. So the term belief is not as expansive definitionally as it seems. The second limit is practical. The reason, what, what constitutes a belief for the purposes of redistricting is a belief or a proxy that allows legislators to translate votes into seats. To the extent that a particular belief does not allow the translation of votes into seats, it would not be operationalized under the statute. And finally, the legal limiting principle are, is confined within the Section 2 amended VRA itself. Section 2 contains statutory safeguards and statutory requirements that must be met in order to succeed on a Section 2 claim. Give me an example of a belief that wouldn't be covered by the statute. That would be covered by the statute. Uh, that would not be covered by the statute. Under that, your definition, which is broad. Uh, the appellant's uh, example of White Sox versus Cubs would not be covered under the statute. Appellants cite this example as a far-reaching parade of horribles saying that if we construe belief to be broad, beliefs such as people who believe that red hair um, should be allowed access to the polls or people who uh, should be allowed to vote based on or discriminated based on White Sox v. Cubs affiliations. I have to would, say, I, I, I have Cubs fans in my family, <laughs> um, and people are religious about this and will spend money and energy, emotional energy. They've held it their whole lives. They're born Cub fans. They die Cub fans. I'm, I'm not sure that you want to give that one up. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why that would not constitute a belief under the statute, Your Honor, even if it is a deeply held uh, religious, almost to a religious belief in your family, um, the reason why it would not be operationalized under the statute is because it would not pass traditional districting principles. It would traditional not pass what principles? Traditional districting principles, such as compactness, contiguity, and respect for communities of interest. Well, what if, Cub, what if Cubs fans are uh, federalists or progressives? What if 99% what if of them fall into one camp or the other? And so you're trying to put the Cubs fans in one particular district and everyone else in another particular district. Does that, I mean, that seems to have a, uh, a redistricting uh, implication to it. Your Honor, that passes muster under the first limit, which is now we have a proxy that tells legislators how votes will be translated in the seats because Cubs are, or White Sox are voting along party lines. However, it doesn't satisfy the second requirement, the statutory requirement that's incorporated within subsection two of the amended VRA, which is traditional districting principles. You would have to prove that the lines were drawn in such a way that satisfy compactness, that satisfy contiguity, and that satisfy communities of interest. To the extent that those requirements are not met, even if you hold the White Sox v. Cubs belief as a deeply held belief, it would not pass muster under the statute. What about, what, what I'm concerned about is that the other words used in this statute involve, uh, unfortunately, areas and bases on which we have had invidious unconstitutional discrimination and a long history of that in this country. 
And the Supreme Court's been pretty clear that when Congress uses its powers under Civil War amendments to step into these areas and regulate state elections like this, we know this from Shelby County and cases that came before it, they've got to have a real record of a real history of a problem that they're addressing. Is there any history of unconstitutional discrimination against people based on politics, unconstitutional discrimination on the basis of politics um, in districting decisions Your Honor, that, there is not that, that Congress could rely on here? Because we can't construe this to create a constitutional problem. Your Honor, the reason why that's not, a, that's not compelled by the statute is because Congress has the power under Article I, Section 4 of the Constitution's Times, Places, and Manners Clause to make a new statement with respect to the statutory provision that it's adopting and the specific language that it's adopting. Here, the threshold question is the language that Congress used in the statute. And with respect to that language, Congress made a deliberate choice to protect partisan gerrymandering by leaving it broad and open in, within the statute I guess every itself. statute Congress enacts, almost every statute they, they enact, we can find an Article I power for. That's why they're doing it. But that doesn't mean they have the power under something like City of Bernie to cross federalism lines under the Civil War Amendment power unless there's a history of unconstitutional discrimination. Well, Your Honor, they're not crossing constitutional lines here because it's not a it's not telling, the amended VRA is not telling states how to elect people or who to elect. It's stopping them from manipulating their own system with respect to voting rights practices, something that Congress has historically done throughout the, the history of the amended VRA. In fact, all of the amendments to the VRA have been expansive and broadening measures. And the most recent amendment, the Feldman-Gutierrez amendment, is consistent with that trend. Would you concede, though, that the other words in the statute do implicate areas where we have a long history of unfortunate and unconstitutional discrimination? Yes, Your Honor. We do concede that. However, belief doesn't carry that unless it's confined to religion. With one small caveat, Your Honor, we do concede that there's a long history with respect to voting rights abuses with respect to religion and race and ethnicity. However, the caveat here is that Congress legislates with specific legal principles in the background. And the specific legal principle in the background that it legislated with here is that political beliefs are protected under the First Amendment. Well, there was no reference at all about that from either of the sponsors when the bill was introduced. Your Honor, to be clear, we, we believe that this question is resolved on plain meaning itself. However, to the extent that this court is concerned by legislative history, the legislative history does not provide this court with an answer for two reasons. First, it's not exhaustive. Representative Gutierrez and Senator Feldman, in their specific mention of particular minorities, do not use those minorities to be a sole paradigmatic or a preclusive example of what the Feldman-Gutierrez Amendment was intended to cover. And second, the, le the legislative history itself is internally inconsistent. Right after there's a specific mention of particular minorities, Representative Gutierrez on page 30 of the record tells us that the purpose of this legislation was to enable courts to compel districting that promotes broad and vigorous participation in the political process. That's inconsistent with a narrow reading of the word belief within the statute itself. So ultimately what this court is left with is either the legislative history is internally inconsistent or at best it's an equipose. But in either of those scenarios, we urge this court to resort to the plain meaning of the text, which is the first step in statutory construction as established by. I guess I didn't understand you to be saying plain meaning of the text. You have an overlay with different prongs that you want us to go through that comes out of the voting context. 
Um, but we don't apply those prongs when we're looking at the other three words in the statute, do we? No, Your Honor, because those particular words have constraints that are built in. Okay. However, and we can see that those So we're words not doing have... natural reading according to either side in this case. Your Honor, the natural reading here is dictated by the definition that belief has, has been encapsulated in, in the dictionary. And that dictionary definition is necessarily broad. It's a state or habit of mind in which trust or confidence is placed through Merriam-Webster's. And other consensus dictionary definitions confirm that particular definition in terms of scope. So to the extent that the plain meaning is- Is being a vegetarian a belief? Being a vegetarian would be a belief, but again, it wouldn't satisfy the, the statutory requirements for what constitutes a belief, Your Honor, because we would have to, again, go through the definition, the practical, and the legal constraints that are imposed upon particular beliefs. And those are where in the statute? Those are in subsection two of the statute, Your Honor, where mm -hmm. the, the court or the or Congress has incorporated the totality of the circumstances test and the judicial overlay through Jingles v. Thornburg, the Supreme Court's decision in that case incorporates three Jingles factors that have to be satisfied. Isn't it true, though, that vegetarians and sort of liberal folks, and they all live together on one side of town, and, <laughs> and the big beefy meat eaters are on the other side of town? Your Honor, that may be then? true. And that may be consistent with how they vote. However, the problem here is where legislators have more reliable proxies, such as political affiliation, in terms of targeting political beliefs, there's no practical reason to use vegetarianism because they have more reliable data and a more reliable proxy by which to translate votes into seats. Turning back to plain meaning, Your Honors, Congress made a deliberate choice here in terms of including belief in the statute. It had a number of options that it could have utilized that it failed to follow through with. First, Congress could have actually used the modifier religion. It could have restricted the definition of belief to religious beliefs. But voting is, you know, in, in, in Welsh and I think Gillette that came before it, there was real concern that there, uh, with the religious exception to the draft, that uh, there was going to be real human consequences, real life consequences to folks not having a religious label for their belief, i.e. they were going to go to war um, and get shot at. And so I think that maybe it was the importance of the context, so vital to um, individual rights and just sort of the structure of our society and how we decide who fights our wars. Uh, so there Congress said, um, we're not gonna take the language quite at its word. We're gonna have to breathe into it some limitations that are consistent with the constitutional system and, and, and ensure we don't have we don't have uh, uh, misreach in how we're applying this. And don't we need to do that here? Because we can't, I think everyone agrees, we can't do, we can't take belief as a meaning by itself. And we've got to impose limitations upon it. And even your three-part test is going to, I think, could come apart the way people tend to live demographically these days. But don't we just need to be really careful about how we're doing? And this is, again, trenching on uh, how states draw their, their lines for even their own elections here. So don't we need to be more careful than your argument is, more narrow? And if we're wrong, Congress can amend it and make it, make it clear. Well, Your Honor, two points on that. First, the protection that's guaranteed in the VRA, the most core protection, is that when you go to the ballot box to cast your vote, that vote will neither be diluted nor denied. So to the extent that belief passes all three practical limits, then this court should protect that, that particular kind of belief. And that, the limitations- Would apply to Nazis too? I mean, assume they all are living in one section of town. 
Your Honor, if they, if they don't fall, that would be a political belief because uh, they would be acting along a particular political platform, so it would be protected mm -hmm. under the statute if those particular Right, that's what I'm asking were. you. You want, you want us to adopt something that makes sure we don't dilute the votes of Nazis. Your Honor, that's an, a, an extreme case. Um, that's something that would necessarily fall within the ambit it's of the statute. It's an extreme belief. It's not an extreme case. It's just an extreme belief. To the extent that those extreme beliefs uh, dilute the votes of a protected class, this court has. You know, I'm worried about. Uh, let's assume someone was worried about uh, trying to uh, take advantage of those votes and wanted to strengthen the Nazi vote because they tended to vote one way. The strengthening Isn't that of the votes. Sorry, Your Honor. Sorry, go ahead. Isn't that problematic? The strengthening of those votes has practical limits, Your Honor. You can only strengthen to a certain extent, and that's why my co-counsel uh, proposed the Whitford test because it imposes a judicially manageable standard by which you can impose a limit to the extent that Nazis are strengthening their votes. Mm -hmm. However, the issue here is what Congress's particular intent was when it adopted the word belief. And that intent is best evidenced by the word that Congress used in the statute to give effect to its intent. That word does not have a modifier. It is potential, it is theoretically limitless. And I thought the test in Whitfield required a severe impact on belief. Yes, Your Honor, it does. Okay or on uh, a severe impact on the protected category. Um, but if it's protected, where does the word severe come from? Why do we have to find a severe impact? Your Honor, that's the line drawing question here. It's a question of what constitutes too much partisan gerrymandering. And Justice Kennedy's response to that, or at least his guidance in Veith, was that courts need to come up with a judicially manageable standard by which that's we can. That's a constitutional one, but I'm trying to think now if we were implementing this under the statute, um, would we have any ability to impose that severe, severe impact requirement in determining whether there's been a violation of the statute? I thought you were saying, suggesting that, but maybe I misheard you. Your Honor, the three prongs ensure that, there, that, we, that a particular extreme belief would not pass muster under practicality limits or the legal limits that, uh, that is set forth in the, in the amended VRA because those extreme beliefs would, would have to satisfy traditional districting principles. And to the extent that they're extreme, they're usually isolated or they're, they're not widespread because they wouldn't satisfy, they wouldn't be able to vote as a particular block against the majority. That would not satisfy traditional districting principles. It wouldn't satisfy jingles and it would necessarily be struck down under the statute. For these reasons, we urge this court to hold that belief extends to political beliefs. Thank you. We have rebuttal from the appellants. May it please the court, uh, two brief points to make on rebuttal. The first concerning the efficiency gap and the second concerning the definition advocated by Governor Sullivan. My opposing counsel has said that there is an egregious efficiency gap in this case, but that is not factually correct. And that's because the efficiency gap cannot be applied to a hypothetical election. The architects of the efficiency gap, the Whitford court, and Justice Kennedy were all very clear that analyzing the results of an election before it has occurred is not permissible. What level of certainty would be required before you could bring a lawsuit before an election? 99%, 99.9%, 100%? 
Is there, is there any level of certainty that would allow someone to sue ahead of time? No, Your Honor. Under the efficiency gap, there is not. The architects were very clear that the efficiency gap should only be used for a completed election, in part because the efficiency gap has no predictive value from one election to the next. Furthermore, it's a candidate-specific metric and cannot be used based on the information in the record here. It just seems a dangerous proposition because, you know, once they're elected, we can't boot them out. Right? They're there, they've won, they've gotten the benefit of it. And if we all can see with a high level of confidence what harm is coming, that would seem to me to satisfy the substantial risk requirement of Article 3. Your Honor, no court has ever interpreted, uh, has ever applied a standard to invalidate a redistricting plan before the hypothetical election. That is because the Supreme Court has been very clear that this is the province of the legislative branch and we need a distinct and specific standard in order to invalidate an election. You're talking and, just about political gerrymandering. Yes, Your Honor. And the only standard that has ever been proposed and adopted by any court, the Whitford Court, looks at a completed election. There's always a first time for everything and I'm not sure there's been a case where you've had a record with this 95% level of certainty, stability and predictability in voting patterns in such an overt manipulation of them. You can answer briefly, sorry. Thank you, Your Honor. I would actually point Your Honors to Harris v. McCrory, which was similarly egregious. On the record there, the legislature said repeatedly they were purposefully doing a partisan gerrymander. And the court still said the case was non-justiciable because there was no standard by which to distinguish this case and future cases. That line drawing question has plagued courts and we acknowledge that, but Governor Sullivan has not offered a credible solution to that issue here today. Thank, Thank you. you very much. We'll take the case under advisement. Please be seated. Thank you. Well, before we begin, can we all just stop and give a round of applause to four fantastic <laughs> It's an absolutely incredible display of oral advocacy, and maybe you all didn't get to see the briefs, but um, uh, we're going to keep you in suspense a little bit longer because each of us want to uh, just make some comments about the advocacy um, skills uh, for you all to hear and our reactions to uh, the arguments. Um, and we'll start with uh, Justice Strauss. Yeah, so I just want to compliment all four of you on a job incredibly well done. That was a wonderful display of oral advocacy. It was a wonderful set of briefs to read. Um, you, took, you all took a very difficult set of subjects, a federal court subject, standing, ripeness, political question doctrine, and a very difficult area with political gerrymandering and made it understandable um, and really did a good job of laying out the general principles for us. So I, I just think it was an incredible incredibly well done job um, by each and every one of you. So, you know, I wanted to give sort of three generalized comments about things to think about with oral advocacy and what we, you know, some of the things that I saw a little bit of um, that I think could be improved uh, in the future and just sort of generally what I look at for oral advocates when, when they appear before me. So one of the things 
that I think is incredibly difficult to do in this in this atmosphere, but is um, very important, I think, in being an effective oral advocate is to be conversational. This, for, for all of you, is probably a really nerve-wracking experience appearing before three judges for the first time, and I completely understand that. Um, but I think being conversational with the judges, um, viewing them as almost, um, you know, maybe law school professors or law school classmates that you're trying to convince of a particular argument can be very helpful. I find that the best oral advocates are the ones where, um, yes, there's formality um, to the proceedings, um, but at the same time, I almost feel like I'm discussing an interesting legal issue with them over a beer. I mean, really, um, we're, we're just being conversational and exchanging ideas. And so sort of think about that um, as you go forward into, into, your, into your legal career as well. The second point I want to make is, um, and, and this is by far, people ask me regularly, what's the biggest mistake you see oral advocates make? And um, this hasn't changed from day one. Uh, for me uh, of being a judge, which is answering the questions directly um, right off the bat. Um, a couple of times, and I don't remember which of you did this and it's not important, but a couple of times the, the, a question was asked and you want to explain why you really can't answer the question before you answer the question. And so you want to give, you wanna give um, sort of reasoning. And what we want to hear is sort of a direct answer to the question. And then if you directly answer the question, almost every judge I know will give you plenty of time to explain why the answer might not be as precise as you first stated it. So, you know, when you're asked a yes or no question, try to say yes or no, um, but then explain, but here's why it might be more difficult um, than, than, than a simple yes or no answer would yield. Um, that's very difficult to do, um, but it's, it's what effective advocates do, and um, so I would, I would pass that along. The third point I would make, and you know, we were a, a pretty hot bench, but you're going to appear before benches that are not necessarily uh, quite as um, participatory as us. Um, and one of the things I would urge you to do is to use examples as well. We asked a lot of examples. Um, I don't know that whether you all felt comfortable using examples, but examples are very useful for judges, particularly as in this case, when we're in a very difficult area of the law, when we're talking about political gerrymandering. And, and I think one of the reasons why we kept asking about examples is because we were having difficulty um, getting through some of the material and understanding your arguments. And so they can be dangerous because if you give the wrong example, you want to think about them ahead of time. You give the wrong example, you've opened yourself up to a whole series of questions about why that example uh, may not benefit your, your client's position. But I do think... Um, particularly if you're if you're before a court where you have you know the court has 10 cases scheduled that day like in a circuit court or an intermediate court um, I think it's really important to use examples and to help the judges understand your case better um, by not strictly talking about the legal issues but also applying them either to the record in this particular case or or by using examples so hopefully those three those three pieces of advice are useful. Um, but overall, I just want to reiterate um, how incredibly impressed I was um, by all of you. Well, I'm going to obviously concur that it was a very excellent um, argument on both sides. Uh, 
I also want to take the opportunity to commend Kevin Palmer, who wrote this problem, because uh, it's hard to write a problem like this and to have the sides balanced in any way. So I, I think that's very important, too. And I also want to say to the parents who are here today and the family members of these teammates, I don't think you probably have any idea how much time and effort your students have put into this situation. And if you're sitting there right now feeling proud, you should be proud because they did an excellent job. All right. Are there parents here? Stand up. Yay. <laughs> make it possible. You make it possible. Um, so uh, it's odd to hear a judge say this, but I don't like making decisions um, <laughs> in, in this particular context. Um, and that is because um, this was really phenomenal. Um, and uh, I've done other moot courts, and I do oral arguments all the time. Um, and this was at uh, a level uh, across the board that was just spectacular um, but they locked us in the room literally, literally. and said yeah, we cannot literally. we cannot go unless we produce blue smoke um, and so we had to make a decision and I know it it's I, I want you to understand that these are decisions that are made in this case very much at the margins uh, very close call very difficult for us to decide um, because you were so good. And for those who saw the backs of the advocates, let me tell you that some of the most important things is what we see on this side and you don't get to see, and that is the good eye contact. That's how um, folks engage, uh, as Justice Strauss said. Uh, and you all were doing that very well. And showing the passion for your positions and your commitment to it and the thoughtfulness uh, that you have put into it. Um, I always say for doing oral argument, two things. Um, argue for an opinion we could write. Right, you're advocates for a side. We have to write an opinion. Uh, so argue for legal rules. Right? Keep, write a shadow opinion as you're preparing for oral argument, and then write a shadow opinion for the other side and figure out why theirs doesn't work and yours does as a rule of law uh, that we can adopt. And you all had already, whether you knew it or not, incorporated that in to your thinking and practicing. And the other thing, sort of with the, the examples that were suggested, uh, is leave us with something to remember your position by, a visual, paint a picture, whether it's Cubs or <laughs> something else, but a picture, because as you said, we'll hear multiple cases in a day and then go back and conference on them. Um, and having something that just rings in the ears is really important. So this was really, you guys got to see a tour de force at oral argument, and for those of you who haven't seen the briefs, these are really exceptionally written briefs. It is, I almost had to keep looking back and make sure that they were actually written by law students, so you should be very, very happy. But now I will stop yammering, which is what you want, and we'll announce that, remembering it's at the margins, uh, that our best team was the Appleese, uh, and the best oralist was Tuba Ahmed.
and appellants get big silver medals, which is really <laughs> with a little gold around the edge. <laughs> really spectacular. So, uh, while cleaning out our closets about uh, a year ago, we found a lovely bowl, which was awarded in the 1960s uh, through 78 uh, to the Champions of Lyle. We got the wow. polish up, and we awarded it for the first time in close to 40 years last year uh, to the winning team of Rudy Swanson and Ashlyn Chandelia. And uh, Rudy is with us today, and he's going to hand off the trophy uh, during the Champions to win five. Coming up. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who don't know, there is a whole wall upstairs that has the names of all the winners over the years. So if you haven't looked at that wall, be sure and go up there before you leave this morning, too. And for those who don't know, it was her son who just handed it off. <laughs> <laughs> she knows all about the process. So. That's right. Thank you very much for the privilege of doing this. And it was a true privilege to hear from these advocates. Um, and I pray that I will get to hear from you again. I should add, by the way, for uh, you parents and friends who are saying um, uh, how mean of her to keep interrupting them uh, with questions and how rude that was. Um, uh, as, as I told my colleagues here, that's par for the course on the DC Circuit and certainly in the uh, US Supreme Court. I had a friend who argued a case there and he got 70, 70 questions in 30 minutes. Uh, that's the questions. That's not the time for the answers in 30 minutes, so do the math. Um, so hot benches are, at, at appellate levels, um, uh, certainly uh, the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court, very common. And so the goal here was to let them have a realistic opportunity. And the other comment I should have added is every one of them handled it incredibly well. You can, if you go to a court and they start asking a lot of questions and then they stop, it's often a sign that someone's not handling the process. And you saw that we never let up because they were, they were, they were making it, they were helping us, as, as Justice Strauss said, to discuss the case and think it through. So I promise I wasn't trying to be rude. <laughs> Thank you.